Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. If we haven't met before, my name's Tom. I'm one of the leaders here. And uh, this morning, we're going to be starting a new series. But before we get to that, I've got a few more things just to speak about with regards to our giving as a church. Um, I want to just take this moment, just take a few minutes to talk about our giving. And uh, if you're perhaps not part of this church family or if you're not uh, a Christian, um, then you can zone out. You have permission to zone out for three or four minutes, but I want you to zone back in in three or four minutes' time. Uh, I really want to speak to our church family just for a few minutes. Um, it's good to review our giving. It's good to do this from time to time, um, just to uh, ensure that we are growing in generosity, really. And for many of us, our income uh, might change uh, depending on what work we have coming in and so on. Uh, and so it's good to take, t- take a moment to review these things. Uh, we have been, and we are, and have been an incredibly generous church, and have been so generous over these last few years. We have uh, grown in generosity in our monthly giving, month by month, um, giving so faithfully into the life of the church here, and over several, uh, what we've been calling journey offerings, we've raised hundreds of thousands of pounds in readiness for our move, our upcoming move, uh, which uh, we hope to be in the uh, former Odeon, uh, worshipping there this time next year. That's our hope and our prayer. Um, just ahead of Wednesday night, just to say, actually, you might want to bring a chair or something to sit on or a cushion or something, because there's no chairs in any of the screens. So uh, if you get tired during worship, you might like to have a little pillow to sit on or, a, or a, I don't know, maybe you can be a bit tough and try and stand, I don't know. But uh, I'm going to bring something, I think, just in case. Um, just on the note of the purchase of the Odeon, I'm just going to share a few things about this, which uh, we're trusting you really just to be um, wise with this information. Um, the purchase of the Odeon was uh, £860,000, um, which considering that this time last year, um, the owner was saying he wanted £1.8 million, um, was quite a difference. And then at, about six months after that, he said he would categorically not deal at any less than £1.2 million. So um, we feel that's God's favour upon us. And um, to complete this purchase, we've taken out a loan of 450,000, uh, sorry, 540,000 pounds, um, and we have about 100,000 pounds left over after purchase, which is actually more than we thought uh, we would have, which is really wonderful, uh, which we can invest directly into the refurbishment of the building. And uh, we're seeking to raise more funds in October this year and uh, March next year. Uh, Over the two offerings that we've got planned, we are seeking to raise a further £150,000 for the first phase refurbishment, a large-scale refurbishment of the premises. That, we trust, will get us in there, get us operating in there, and then in the years to come, there'll be some other things that we're going to want to do as well. So I want to raise the 14th of October again to your attention and just urge you and encourage you to think and pray about what you can give uh, in that offering. But I also want to urge you to prayerfully review your regular giving. This is something that Sarah and I do from time to time, at least once a year, um, to see if we can possibly increase our giving to the church. We give monthly um, to this church, and uh, we make our giving floor, if you like, 10% of our income pre-tax. That's what we do. And uh, we've been, for many years, uh, giving that, but in recent times, giving uh, in excess of that because we want to continue to grow in our generosity. And many people in this church make it uh, their priority to give in that way, to make it their habit to give um, that amount of money, uh, if not more. Um, Really, it's it's related to 
inspired by the Old Testament practice of tithing, where um, the Israelite people would give 10% of their goods um, to the work of God's people in the temple. But we believe we've got a far greater reason to give than to obey a law. We believe really that God has treated us far, far better than we deserve. He has, as we've been celebrating this morning and singing about this morning, he has taken our sin away. He's removed our shame and our guilt. He's placed us uh, in his son, Jesus. And so really, out of the overflow of his grace to us, we say, God, this is all yours. And in fact, all of our money is yours, though. We want to use it in a way that honors you. And so that's why for us, for Sarah and I, our giving to the church is the very first thing that comes out of our account after payday. We have a standing order, and the very first thing that comes out of our account is our giving, because we don't want to uh, have our contribution, our giving um, to the life of uh, God's church here squeezed out by other things. Because what tends to happen is, and certainly in a long month like August, um, you can find, I really haven't got much left at the end of the month. And so what we do is we have it set up so our standing order is the very first thing that comes out of our account after payday. So I want to just encourage you to consider uh, setting up a standing order, if you haven't done already, to say, I want to give regularly. I want to come on to um, speaking about how you could decide what to give in just a moment. But these big offerings that we have, they're fun, they're exciting. I, I love the celebration that we have when we say we've raised X amount of money, and it's so good to celebrate these things. But regular giving is really, really good for us. It's not as glamorous as the big offerings. It's not as sexy as it were, as the kind of big celebrations and the drums and the, the dancing and the celebrating. But it's so important for us. It's so important for us. It's important for our hearts. Because in giving to God freely, not out of compulsion, not because I say, come on, let's give, but actually out of an overflow of God's grace to us, we're saying to God, money will not be my God. Money will not be my God. Jesus Christ is my God. Jesus Christ and his kingdom is my number one priority. So can I urge you, just as I finish this um, giving exhortation, really, that if you're not giving regularly, can I encourage you to step into this and trust God with this? Pray and decide in your heart what from your income you can give. We'd be delighted if you would consider setting up a standing order. That really helps you. If you miss church, then you can still give. But it also helps us to budget and plan for the future. You might think, I cannot afford to give anything. I can literally give nothing. I have no money left at the end of the month. Well, can I encourage you to look over what you're spending your money on and think, is there something that's perhaps taking priority unnecessarily? Maybe there's things that you could be creative with. Maybe you have loads of stuff around the house that you don't need anymore. And you might think, I'm just going to go to a car boot sale and raise a little bit of money that I can give. If you're already giving, perhaps you might like to pray and review and see if you can increase that at all. You might think, I'd like to try and aim to raise my giving so that I'm giving 10% of my income. See that God comes through for you in that, because he will. It's one of the only things that God says, test me on this. Perhaps you're giving 10% of your income already or more. Let me encourage you to seek to grow in your generosity. You might think, there's some more I can give. Our monthly repayments on the mortgage we've taken out on the Odeon will be £2,600 a month. If all of our regular givers gave £20 a month extra, then we would cover that cost. Now, there's more expenses that we'll have on top of that, of course, but I'm saying this to simply show you 
that we, as we all uh, give generously and sacrificially, in regular giving as well as the exciting giving, then we will see these additional needs met. We will see, I believe this, friends, and we're going to, um, I'm so excited to show you around on Wednesday. We will see an amazing facility that will be uh, for the good of our church, but ultimately for the flourishing of this town. As many, many hundreds of people, we pray, will come to know Jesus in that place and through ministries that go on uh, from that place. We believe that we're going to see the kingdom of God advance here. Can I just pray? And then we're going to tuck into today's passage. Father, we thank you so much that you have been so generous to us. You sent your son to die in our place, who laid aside all of his rights of deity and came and lived among human beings like us, and who died the most awful death on the cross, and who rose again victorious, now seated at your right hand and ruling and reigning. We thank you, Lord, for your generosity to us. Thank you for all that we have. We say, Lord, it's all yours And we simply want to grow in our generosity. Whatever it looks like for each one of us, let us grow. Help us to grow, Lord. Whether it's small steps or whether it's already very, very significant. And we're just seeing, is there anything we can grow in here? I pray that you'd help each one of us to move forward in this area. And that we would plunge the dagger into the God of money, uh, which is such an idol in our country, Lord. And we'd say, no, we trust Jesus. He meets all our needs. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, we've got a new series uh, today, which is in the book of 1 Corinthians. However, we are not going to actually dive into the book of 1 Corinthians today. I want to tell you a little bit about the church in Corinth, and we're going to look at the story from Acts where this church gets started. Um, So if you have a Bible with you, you might like to uh, turn to Acts chapter 18, and we're going to read from it in just a moment. This series is going to go on for quite some time. This series is going to go on until March. Are you up for that? Are you up for a long Bible teaching series? We're going to break for Advent and Christmas and a bit of New Year as well, but we're going to be in this book for a while. Uh, the church that Paul was writing to was in Corinth in Greece. It was planted in AD 50 or thereabouts, so about 20 years after Jesus had walked on the earth. And five years later, Paul was in Ephesus in Turkey, and he wrote to the church in Corinth. They had got some things very wrong, and we're going to see that in the coming weeks. There were some really messed up things going on in the church, uh, but there was also some great things going on in the church, and Paul would write to them to correct them on some things, but to encourage them as well, that they were the temple of God's Holy Spirit, as imperfect as they were. They were still loved by God, and still God had purposes for them. So today we're going to be in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18, and um, as we read the story, right at the beginning, you'll see that the first words were after this. So we need to have a quick look at what was going on before this. Well, Paul had been in Athens, which historically had been a major cultural center. Plato and uh, Socrates and Aristotle had uh, expounded their philosophies there, and uh, it wasn't at its peak, but it was still a very, very important place. And there was a huge concentration of very, very clever people there. It's like a Cambridge or an Oxford uh, on steroids. It was a really kind of, uh, it was a very, very cultured cultured place. And Paul had gone to Athens and he'd looked around uh, Athens and he had seen that it was full of idols. People were putting their trust in things that were not living. They were putting their trust in things that were dead. 
And he got angry. He got righteously angry at this. But his, in his anger, he didn't start shouting at people. He didn't start denouncing them all and telling them they were going to hell. No, he reasoned with them. He reasoned with them. He quoted their own poets, which were like the rock stars of the day. And he quoted their poets to show them that there is a God and that there is a God who has made everything. He has made everything and he's made us in his image. That he doesn't live in temples made by men. And that in his love, he has sent his son, Jesus, who laid aside, who remained fully God, but laid aside the rights of his deity in coming to earth, walking amongst us, and ultimately dying on the cross and rising again. And what's more, that he would return to judge the world. He would judge all who had ever lived. And so he calls them to repent. He, turn, he calls them to turn around, to turn away from their idols that they would put their faith in and to turn to the living God. To say, come on, there's a living God that you can put your trust in. And some people mock him and yet a few believe. And so having seen a few people come to know Jesus, he moves on to Corinth, which is the biggest city that he's likely ever been to. It was huge for that time, 250,000 people Paul was scared. We see in the book of 1 Corinthians that he came. He was trembling. He was fearful. This was a city known for its wealth, its commerce, its business, but it was also known for sin. It was known as a city of vice. There was uh, the Roman uh, goddess uh, Venus or uh, uh, Aphrodite uh, was worshipped in this city. And there was a big temple just behind the city and a thousand uh, female slaves served in that temple. And every night... They came down the hill and into the town and served as prostitutes. This was, this was the reputation that the city had. It was a city of vice. This was an intimidating place to go, but Paul pressed on. So let's see what happens, shall we, in Acts chapter 18. So after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them... And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue. Here we are, we see him reasoning again. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent, and from now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. We see here they didn't wait around, they believed and they got baptized. That's what we see throughout the book of Acts. We want to baptize you if you believe in Jesus. We've got baptisms coming up at the end of September. I know four people at least who are going to get baptized. So if you believe in Jesus, get baptized. That's the pattern we see here. So they, were belie they believed in the Lord and they got baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. 
But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. This morning, I want to talk about the unstoppable advance of God's kingdom. I want you to consider this. If you believe in Jesus, if you have placed your faith in him, you are part of something that is unstoppable. You are part of something. As we've sung this morning, you're part of a kingdom that is unstoppable. God's kingdom is breaking out in all the earth. We heard a few months ago, someone who was speaking here said, there's a Mexican wave of praise going on over this day as people write from every continent and from uh, many, many different nations rise up to sing the praises of Jesus Christ. We are part of something that is worldwide. Jesus is being crowned as king in people's hearts and lives. Fear and sin and sickness are leaving as King Jesus' kingdom rises up. God's kingdom advance is unstoppable. It is absolutely unstoppable. I want you to know that this morning. In fact, I want that to be the main thing that you take away from this morning, that we are part of something that is completely unstoppable. Churches come and go, pastors come and go, but God's kingdom rule will never end. It will never end. His kingdom reign is unstoppable. We read in Isaiah chapter 9 that of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Now, the bit that we often miss out there is the very last bit, which says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, the, the, the one who commands angel armies, that's what the word hosts means, will accomplish this. God is more zealous than you or I. You might be zealous for a football team. You might be zealous for a band. You might be zealous for something else, some other cause. But God is far more zealous about his own kingdom advance and about his own glory than you are zealous for that cause. He will accomplish it. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. So in this passage, we see some advance of God's kingdom. And I want to examine two components of unstoppable advance. The first one is God's sovereignty. Throughout this passage, we see God's sovereign hand at work. We throw that phrase around a lot, that word sovereign. It basically means that God is in charge and he does whatever he pleases. That is super important to us. God sets out to do something and he does it. Nothing hinders him. He gets what he wants despite the opposition. He ultimately gets what he wants. He is all powerful. This sovereignty extends to deciding when and where we live. We see that in Acts chapter 17 when Paul's in Athens He says this in verse uh, 27. He made uh, from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and feel their way towards him and find him. It's God who's in charge of where we live. It's God who's in charge of life and death. That's so important. He decides when our time is up. My children got a hamster for Christmas, which I would highly recommend. Ten quid, hours of fun. Hours and hours of fun. But they're starting to learn to read, which is regrettable because uh, we, we sometimes go for a free day out at the pet shop. Okay, that's like a free zoo trip for us. Any other parents do that? Is it just us? No, you'll do it as well. Go to the pet. Don't buy anything, but you look around and look at the animals. 
And they picked up a leaflet about hamsters. And they read in the leaflet that hamsters have a life expectancy of one to two years. So now we're getting all kinds of questions. Dad, when will Daisy die? And Dad, when will you die? I get asked that one quite a lot. And I say, children, it's God who's in charge of life and death. And we can trust him. We can trust him. We don't know if Daisy's going to be here next Christmas. But we can trust him. God is sovereign. We see his sovereignty worked out in Corinth. Paul had come to an intimidating city. He doesn't have his usual team with him. Timothy and Silas are nowhere to be seen. They don't arrive till later on in the passage. He didn't see much success in Athens. He got mocked and only a few people said they wanted to hear some more and and gave their lives to Jesus. He's come to a very intimidating city. He's low on confidence. But God, in his sovereign providence, places Aquila and Priscilla in his path. We're going to get to them in a minute because they are outstanding people and they need, we need to go into them in some depth. They've been ejected from Rome as a result of persecution. And look where they turn up just at the same time as Paul. What an encouragement to him. They were already Christians by this point. It's almost certain that they were already Christians by this point. It says that they were Jews, but as we see from later on in the passage... Um, often Christians are described as Jews if that's their ethnic background. So they were Jewish Christians and mature Christians as well who rock up in this godless city just at the same time as Paul. And they're amazing people as we're going to see in a moment. God knows what he's doing. Can I, just, can I just let that sink in for a minute? God knows what he's doing. You might have all kinds of questions in your mind. You might have all kinds of anxiety swirling around. You might be very anxious, but God knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. And that anxiety is going to be dealt with when you take a long soak in the bath of God's sovereignty. When you fill your mind with the fact that God reigns. When you fill your mind with it. And you probably have to have it every day. Like a daily bath, you probably need to soak in this every day. If you're an anxious person, you need to know that God's in charge. Any theology that you might have that says God doesn't know about certain things, or he doesn't see certain things coming, that he doesn't have the ultimate victory, it's going to lead you to anxiety. And you might not even highlight it as anxiety, but it might manifest in a whole other bunch of ways. God's in charge. That's, I want you to know that God's in charge. Even in the midst of the opposition And we see this in this passage, God is in charge and people get saved. Even after people have got super mad with Paul, people got saved. And it hots up even more and God comes to this weary apostle who, to be honest, is probably ready to jack it in. He's quite a superhero in the Bible, isn't he, Paul? But I bet he had times when he's thinking, I'm quite happy to stop now, Lord. I'm quite happy to go and get a nice uh, villa in the south of France or something like that, Lord. I, I quite happily put my feet up now. And Paul Paul is at the end of his tether, really, and God comes to him, and he says this in verse 9. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. He's saying, Paul, you're my instrument. This is my responsibility. I will save people, but I want to use you. God encourages him. He says, there's more that will come to know me here. There's more people that are going to come to know Jesus. God will have his way. Please don't doubt that. I've spent the summer um, 
reading this great book called Great Revivals by Colin Whitaker. And uh, this week I read about the, probably the most amazing revival that has ever happened in China over this last century. Between 1966 and 1976, the Communist Party murdered millions for their faith. They murdered millions of people. Churches were burned in China, Christians were imprisoned, and some were nailed to the walls of their churches, as if to make a point. The Communist Party in China seemingly had unstoppable power. And yet that might does not compare to the power of God. It doesn't begin to compare. Because it says in Isaiah 40 that the nations to God are like a drop in a bucket. They're like a drop in a bucket. And over these last few decades, even in the midst of such persecution, the church in China has undergone the most remarkable revival of all time. And uh, a number of years ago, there was 300 evangelists gathered in one room, including a lady called Mama Kwong, who some of you may have heard of. And like Paul, they heard a voice from God as they prayed one night. And God said this, although communism is evil, I will open the door and no one will shut it. And so they began to preach boldly and every single night, whole villages turned to Christ. Even high-ranking government officials received Christ. People were healed of incurable diseases. Robbers were miraculously converted. In the decade that followed that great persecution, Christianity spread rapidly. Mama Kwong, she led so many people to Christ. She was imprisoned three times. Her son was nailed to the walls of his church. And she was eventually driven out to, J to Japan because imprisoning her was not effective. <laughs> there are now 100 million Christians in China. 100 million Christians in China. This now massively eclipses the membership of the once seemingly undefeatable Communist Party. In five years' time, China will be the country with the most Christians in it, in the whole world. And Pastor Wang Mingdao, he was dubbed the St. Paul of China. He spent 22 years in prison and labor camps for his faith. He summarizes the story like this. This is God's handiwork. He has done great things inside China, and no one can steal his glory. To God be the glory, great things he has done. The single most important factor in this revival is the supernatural power of God working through miracles in answer to believing prayer. So we believe in a sovereign God who knows the end from the beginning, and yet he responds to our prayer. We must pray. He hears our prayer. He acts in response to believing prayer. Wednesday night is an exciting moment for us, and we're going to have a tour and all that kind of stuff. But the most exciting bit is that we get to praise him and we get to pray. Because if revival accounts count, teaches anything, it's that God will have his way. But prayer is key. No opposition will bring it to a halt, but prayer is key. The UK is no longer a Christian country. I, don't, I do not believe this, this country is a Christian country. It's not. 5% of this country would believe in Jesus and place their faith in him wholeheartedly. The opposition to the gospel is already present and it will increase. It will increase. I don't have to be a major prophet to predict that. But we have to plunge our minds into God's sovereignty and see that he will have a glorious church from every nation, tribe and tongue. He will. He will have his way. He, he has great purposes for his church in this nation. And the book of Acts, friends, you need to read it. 
because it's so encouraging. It will strengthen us as we seek to see the name of Jesus made famous here in Ipswich and beyond. So we trust him, we trust in God, we trust in his sovereignty, and we plow on, we share the gospel as we go. So the, the sovereignty of God is one component. I said there was two in this passage. Number two is sold out people. We get to partner with God in his mission. He chooses to partner with us and work through people. He doesn't need us, but he chooses to use us. People need to hear a message. They need to hear the message of Jesus. They need to hear it. How can they believe if they haven't heard? We read in Romans 10. How can they believe if they haven't heard? God chooses to use us. And he uses ordinary people who are sold out for him, who are committed to making Jesus famous. And Aquila and Priscilla are ordinary people who were sold out for Jesus. And I want to focus on them today. They're not the only ones in this passage, but they're the main ones. God, pardon me, God works amazingly through them. Priscilla and Aquila, they pop up not just in Acts, but they also pop up in Romans and 1 Corinthians and in other places as well. They pop up in various different places and they come very much as a team. They appear together. Wherever you read about Aquila, there's Priscilla. Where you read about Priscilla, there is Aquila. There's no indication that one is more gifted or prominent than the other. Sometimes Priscilla or Prisca is mentioned first, sometimes Aquila. They were a team. And if you're married here, I want to just address you for a minute. But those who are not married, listen in on this as well, please. There may be things, if you're a married couple here, or if you're married and your partner knows Jesus, there may be things that God has called and gifted you to do individually. There may well be things that individually you'll give yourself to. But there will also be things that he has called you to do together. There'll be people that you can encourage together. There'll be people that you can reach together. There'll be things that you go after in prayer for together. There'll be adventures in serving together. There'll be adventures in giving and sacrifice together. And you need to work out what each other's strengths and weaknesses are. You need to do that. You need to study your partner. Can I encourage you to do that? Work out what your strengths and weaknesses are. Aquila and Priscilla, they needed to do that. They were business partners. They were making tents together, but they were also ministry partners. They went on to become part of Paul's apostolic team. They needed to work out what each other's strengths were. You need to work that out. You need to work out, okay, what's going to bless uh, my husband and wife? What's going to be, how can I help them to get into their sweet spot in terms of serving God and encouraging others? You have to do that. And can I encourage you to pray? Can I encourage you to pray for your marriage? You might think, well, I can't ever see my marriage being fruitful like Priscilla's and Aquila's was. Pray for it. That's the beginning of a very good thing. If you start to pray for your marriage, can I encourage you to pray for your marriage? Pray. God, would you... Would you do something beautiful through us? Would you draw us together that we might reflect you more? Ask God to transform it. Pray that you'll be a good team. Pray that together you'll lift up the name of Jesus. So Priscilla and Aquila, they were a team. Another thing that I know is that wherever they go, they are sold out for God. Whether it was in Rome, as they were previously, or in Corinth, where they spent at least 18 months, or whether it was in Ephesus, where they seemingly spent a lot more time, they were sold out. Their work... And their ministry caused them to travel around a fair bit. But wherever they went, they gave themselves to the work of God in that place. They gave themselves wholeheartedly 
Sometimes people uh, have to move around a fair bit for work. And sometimes that might lead to people saying, well, I'm, there's no point in me getting stuck in here because I know that I'm going to be moving on. Let me encourage you, if, if that's your attitude and you know that you're not going to be here for a long time, get stuck in here. Because if you say of this place, well, I'm not going to throw myself in here because I don't know how long I'm going to be here for, then I don't think you're going to do it in the next place either. Get stuck in. Throw yourself in to what God's doing in the place that he has placed you right now. Give yourself to the kingdom. Give yourself to reaching others and his local church until he moves you on. That's what Aquila and Priscilla demonstrated. They gave themselves to the work of God where he had placed them. The third thing I see in them is that they were hospitable people. Paul writes that all, he writes in uh, Romans that all of the churches of the Gentiles, that's the non-Jewish background churches, that they were grateful to Priscilla and Aquila. They had affected many churches on their travels and through their encouragement and through their hospitality. Their ministry may or may not have been a platform ministry. As far as we know, they never wrote any books. They weren't necessarily flashy people, but they were hospitable. They take Paul in. Later on in chapter 18, we didn't read that far, they take Apollos in, who was a budding leader in the church. It was quite impressive in some regards, but he needed discipleship. He needed help. We know from uh, 1 Corinthians 16, as we go through the book, that Priscilla and Aquila had a church that met in their home. We don't know how many people that was, but it was probably quite a large group that met in their home. And it probably just wasn't on Sundays either. It wasn't just at 9.30 on a Sunday morning. They would have had people in their home a lot. Their home was a tool for God's kingdom. Their doors were open. We plug hospitality a lot here because really, although it sounds counterintuitive to say this, a church building is not the be-all and end-all. I've just encouraged you, come on, let's give generously. Let's, con let's continue to give sacrificially into this because we do believe it's important. But we don't believe that it's the be-all and end-all. The, the, the homes that God has given us are as much of a tool as the building that we're going to have in the center of town. The homes he's given us are to be used as tools for his kingdom advance. Even if your home isn't very big or it isn't very nice, or even if you don't even have a table and you need to sit on lap trays, that's fine. And have people in your home or you not, may not even have the money to cook for people. You can have people over and enjoy hospitality with you. It doesn't need to look a certain way. But Priscilla and Aquila saw that their home was a place where the kingdom of God, God could advance. So let's be like them in that they were hospitable. And fourthly, finally, they were saturated in the truth. I've mentioned Apollos, who pops up uh, in Ephesus in Acts chapter 18. He's an impressive guy, seems to know the Bible well. He's seemingly getting a high profile in the church, but he needs some Bible training. Now, he doesn't uh, go off and do a degree somewhere. No, he goes and has tea with Priscilla and Aquila. And they train him and say, you've got some things a bit skew here. Let's help you to understand some things. They were saturated in the truth. They loved the truth. Listen, we have to have bread for people, don't we? We have to have things that we can give to people. We have to have bread. We have to be eating God's word. We have to be uh, bringing it into our lives so that when people are around us, we actually have bread to give them. That we can say, hey, I want to encourage you with this. Let's be those saturated in God's word like Priscilla and Aquila. So that when people are around us, we can pour out life-giving truth into their lives. So I want to encourage us. We're going to sing in just a moment. I wonder if the band could come and get ready to lead us. 
Let's be those who, in light of God's sovereignty, in light of the fact that his victory is not a possibility, it's a certainty, in light of the fact that his kingdom is advancing all around the world, let us be sold out people. Let us be sold out for him. Let's take the opportunities that come our way to advance the kingdom of God. Let's take the opportunities that come our way to share Jesus with people. Take the opportunities because he wants to advance his kingdom through ordinary men and women like us. He, he, he wants to use us. And his kingdom is unstoppable, friends. His kingdom is unstoppable. And he wants to use you and I. He really does. He really does. And it might not be, it might be that we've blown it in the past and think, oh, I should have spoken to that person. It's okay. God has grace for you in this. He's grace for me. There's many times when I've spurned opportunities that's come my way. He is unstoppable, friends. Can we stand together? I want to pray for us. And then we are going to sing in response and worship this unstoppable God.